Hello humans of triathlon and welcome to the hot podcast where we bring you the ordinary but extraordinary world of triathlon one human one story at a time with the aim to inspire and to celebrate this life-changing sport and its humans through real authentic raw and enjoyable conversations with triathletes from all around the globe and from all walks of life I'm Swapnil Chauhan here with my co-host Charles Hunk and Radmom Robin along with an amazing guest Today's hot podcast guest has taken his drive and devotion from the world of track and cross-country running and from training as an orchestral musician on the double bass, and he's applied it to the world of triathlon, competing year-round in road triathlons, off-road Xterra racing, and in cyclocross. He's moved from the rainy forests of the Pacific Northwest in my hometown right here of Eugene, Oregon, also known as Tracktown, USA, and down to the hot deserts of Arizona. And he just recently qualified for his pro license with a series of impressive podiums. Along the way, he's overcome some big obstacles, including injuries and a struggle with anorexia and bulimia. I think we will all come away inspired after this conversation. So please welcome Evan Party to the show. Hi, Evan. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> you are lying about the pod. It's, uh, 106 here today. 106. Wow. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. it's... Uh... I'm missing Eugene around this time of year. That's an understatement of the century. Yeah, it was like 82 with the breeze here. So, uh. <laughs> oh, if only, if only. Yeah, with the pool water, you know, it blasts jets of cold water at the uh, ASU pool, and and it's like you're like, oh, great, nice effort. It's still like 83 degrees in this thing. Oh God, terrible. Yeah. Well, no. um. Just to get us going, why don't you um, talk a bit about how you got into running and were you athletic as a kid? Is this something that, that you started when you were super young? I was not really athletic as a child. My parents had me do some basic team sports, but not really. Actually, uh, to be honest, my mother told me years later when I was in uh, fourth grade in 2004, I got a, a letter from the uh, school that said, Hey, your kid is, <laughs> your kid's obese and it's not oh, good. Wow. And you should oh. probably, you know, stop feeding him stuff as much. And my mother's like, geez, I mean, well, I don't know. We thought we were doing okay. Like, I know he's a big kid, yada, yada. So, uh, it didn't do a whole lot. I kind of grew out of that a little bit, but I was always, I was always the big kid. I always played like, you know, offensive line, in football and in elementary and middle school. And um, that really only changed when I was uh, 13. A friend of mine uh, at the time's older sister was getting into rowing and he was like, Hey, we should do this summer camp at rowing. And uh, I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Whatever. Like, you know, I always love the water and ships and stuff. So I said, cool. And we went out there and uh, obviously, uh, you know, anybody who's watched any rowing at the Olympics knows that it's an extraordinarily painful uh, sport. I mean, the, those guys, VO2 maxes are huge. Um, and so I got out there and started, I learned how to row and, and, and I experienced the first time like endurance training. 
and I got kind of hooked on it, but I was still the bigger kid. You know, it was pretty hard, but I, I had a kind of natural aptitude for rowing quite a long time for a 13 year old. And so that's how I kind of started in endurance sports. And then, uh, I tried running because the coach had said you should run and got into that in high school. And they recruited me for the cross country team because somebody made a mistake in my name. They thought I was a different kid who was a runner. And so I got this invitation to join cross country and it was really just addressed to the wrong kid. Uh, but I was like, oh, well, I guess they thought it was me. And the coach kind of looked at me the first day of practice and was like, uh, okay, sure. But luckily enough, the luck worked out for him. Uh, I ended up, you know, progressing and, and falling into love with running and ultimately leaving rowing. And then I ran uh, four years in high school. Um, but the stigma of always being the bigger kid and getting looks and, you know, the, the body image issue uh, compounded with the typical sort of, uh, you know, teenage hormonal issues was what led me to having anorexia and bulimia uh, in high school and struggling with that quite a lot, which besides the, the mental side of, of that illness, uh, you really can't be a runner and have it because frankly, your bones just can't handle it. And so, so I also what, fractured my hip then because what exactly it. is anorexia and bulimia for those who don't know? So anorexia and bulimia are often used to describe, you know, the same eating disorder condition. Technically, one is purging uh, via like something like throwing up or laxatives, but uh, it doesn't have to be that. I purged food and calories from my body by excessive training. So I essentially starved myself and then run. So I purged. And then I also just didn't eat, which would be uh, also, you know, obviously bad. So I was kind of combining both technically, according um, to my psychologist at the time. So very, very rapid weight loss, as opposed to just having a little bit slower decline. Uh, it, 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 it was quite drastic. Over the course of five months, I lost about 60 pounds. Wow. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah. And my, my poor parents were just, you know, obviously like <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> yeah. What have we done wrong? You know, of course they didn't do anything wrong. They're loving, wonderful parents, but you know, so the combination of the two, especially, you know, eating less and then immediately sneaking out of the house to go for a run or something to get it out of my system kind of doubles down on the whole calorie deficit. Right. Were this is not running? what normal normal teenagers do not sneak out of their house to go running normally. Yeah, you know, something along <laughs> the lines there. Usually there's there's girls involved. In my case, it was, uh, you know, running downstairs to get my hokas on and uh, get the hell out of the house. Uh, you know, and, and hoka was the name of my girlfriend. So. <laughs> <laughs> so were you were you running primarily just to, you know, reduce weight or was there an aspect of enjoyment in that? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, when I first started running cross country, it was a similar, you know, it was, uh, I loved the competitiveness of it and I liked the pain and that was carrying over from rowing. And what the problem was, I decided at some point in time that the body image issue was more important than the, you know, racing and running and enjoyment elements. So 
it was perverted in the sense, yes, that I was literally just running to get the calories out. Now, later in my like recovery process, once I'd worked with mental health professionals and a dietitian, and you know, I, I regained the spirit of of competition. But during the actual eating disorder, no, it was it was very much a I don't care about the actual sport. All I care about is getting this out of my body. So does that still come back and haunt you now? Do you, I know people, you know, eating disorders don't always just kind of go away. They're sometimes just sort of lingering there. Do you feel that need every now and then come up and have to kind of battle it away or is it just gone? Uh, no, no, no. It, it, it's, I really think that's one of the, the terrible things about mental illness, right? Um, beyond just eating disorders uh, is that, yeah, they, they always be lingering uh, uh, scars of these things. Uh, no, I, I, I think I'm, for the most part, able to deal with those sort of feelings. I think in general, my issues would come from uh, more along the lines of just body image issues, especially just falling into bad loops of comparing myself to other, other athletes and other looks, even though at the end of the day, I can rationalize that that's a poor decision and it doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day, but it still doesn't mean I'm not going to fall into that uh, thought process. Uh, in terms of purging and getting rid of it, I, I've, I've, that was my biggest issue then, and I've really worked through that mindset. So I'm, I'm fortunate I don't, I haven't had those thoughts in many years. But the, the lingering issue of eating disorder still is, is, uh, I, for me personally, is is always going to be the body image issue, and and a, a, a deeper streak of perfectionism. I think is very common amongst um, the eating disorder uh, folks that I've talked to um, and especially amongst eating disorder athletes. It's always, not always, of course, but it tends to be a streak of perfectionism underlying that and, and dealing with that issue as the underlying root cause of all of the other issues is kind of the key to recovery. But, you know, of course it it is hard on some days and it's better on others, but for the most part, I, I feel I'm, I'm much more in control now than I was, you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's great. And it, and it's not talked about much with men really at all. That's a, it's a great point. And that's why I, about uh, three years ago, actually my senior year at the University of Oregon, my roommate was a journalist for the Emerald, the local uh, the university paper. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned to him, and he he, he was aware of, 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 of my story uh, as a friend, a great friend of mine. And I told him, I said, hey, uh, one night while we were having dinner, I said, hey, you know, I'd be willing, I think, now to, to, to talk about this to the broader public because, men, it's just not something that's brought up. And, and if it does, it's always sort of a, a coy, sly way. So I said, hey, you know, I'd love to do it's 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 a down season. Football season is just kind of wrapping up here. Like, why not? You know, if I'd be willing to talk to somebody at the paper. And, and so he brought it up to his editor and um, uh, uh, he didn't cover the story, but a different uh, writer did. And I came forward and we had a very long conversation about all of the dirty details of it and and the how I felt and how I you know felt at the time and now and and uh, that was the first time I really went quote unquote public with it and uh, it, it made the front page of the paper got picked up by a couple other websites and I was just overwhelmed by like the amount of uh, folks like on my own personal Facebook men around uh, 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 the US who I'd known who had braced against uh, two guys in Canada even message me and say, Hey man, like, just so you know, like I've totally had this, this, this thoughts and this bad thing. And 
I hated myself and I've never, ever talked about it. And I saw help for it. And I just, yeah, I just never wanted to deal with it again. And, and it was, it was, frankly, it was surprising. That it's out there in, in numbers that are just kind of unacknowledged. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think it's uh, unfortunate, of course, that, that a lot of men have this mindset that, you know, it's, it's a weakness and, and, and especially because the, the disease tends to, I think, according to Nita, about 70% of eating disorder uh, occur in women. But, you know, still, there's a lot of, lot, a lot of numbers for that other 30%. So, again, I think that stigma kind of, of holds men back from talking about it and, and, and letting themselves be vulnerable about it in a little more public sense so people understand what's going on. Uh, because people aren't stupid. Like, they'll, they'll look at you and they'll see, holy crap, that guy is as thin as a rail. And he wasn't before. Man, and like you know, people understand that something is off. So, I, in a sense, that there is a sort of closure to being able to speak about it publicly that I think men sometimes don't quite go for, as opposed to the uh, 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 females who happen to have the disease as well. Yeah, and I guess the yeah. the sort of taboo that it, it has on men obviously prevents them from speaking about it earlier. And of course, you get to have. A, potentially the disease for longer and longer, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, two of the people I've, I've talked to, uh, you know, thought it was I'm trying to think of the wording he used, but you know, like, yeah, taboo, uh, uh, extra embarrassing, frankly, you know, especially considering the image of men, big, strong men in this country. And, and that idea to kind of go against that seems, you know, drastically perverse in a lot of ways. So uh, one guy I talked to just said, yeah, I just, I just felt stupid. And is there anything worse than feeling stupid in public? And, and, and because he's just like, this, this is not what I should be. This not was, isn't what I was. And now look where I am now. And it's, it's embarrassing. And, and so, yeah, it just doubles down on itself. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but I guess in, but in your case, for example, you had the, the sort of opportunity to share your experience, and most likely people who heard uh, all the the response you got, people maybe somehow they they managed to get out or to seek out for help after hearing your story. But maybe maybe in your case you didn't have that. So my question would be, what was the trigger point for you to actually? go on and, and get out of that, not seek for help. So what was it for you that, uh, that worked? Yeah. What was the well, recovery process like? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, to, so to get to, to both of that, the trigger point for me to actually come out and speak about it, I think to be honest, was really from a point of, look, if I've learned something from this process and I, I, I've come out of it, I feel like I had seen colleagues, especially runners, you know, because they're a dime a dozen great runners in Eugene, Oregon, let's be honest, uh, who had really obvious to me bad eating habits and a bad outlook on food. I mean, the, the fact that they talked about it all the time uh, and and would pseudo shame other people for eating things. And I was just like, yeah, I... I understand that that pain of that thought process and the awareness that they have on the inside that this isn't right. And so I, I was like, you know what, I, I've come a long way since having it. 
and now's the time I should I should say something. Why not? I mean, I and I, I also have to say like I felt confident enough in where I had evolved to from the illness. Uh, I felt confident in my own personal development, not only as an athlete but as a person, as a musician. Kind of kind of a solidification of where I was in my life that. I could take any criticism or any negative thoughts that might have come with it, which to be honest, of course, there was some, some uh, exposing it for the first time to a a stranger felt very weird. So there was some of that um, involved, but I had come to a point where I was ready to do that. Uh, The recovery process overall for me was uh, I would, uh, from what I understand, talking to a little bit to some healthcare professionals was a little bit different. Uh, I f- came under the eating disorder very rapidly in the course of about six, seven months. Um, I, I uh, suffered through about a period of a year of having it and fighting the thoughts and fighting the issues around it. Um, I had a great, great uh, psychologist right off the bat. Uh, my, my local, I was very fortunate before that, my, my general practitioner was a uh, very keen individual when my parents brought me in were like what's wrong with him is his thyroid acting up like maybe he has a disease and he brought them out of the room or, or brought, went into the lobby and said hey look uh just so you know something wrong with him physically i think he has a mental illness i think he has an eating disorder i think you need to seek professional mental health care and my parents were obviously shocked but said okay and and i i was very lucky to have immediate firsthand knowledge uh, which a lot of folks don't have. A lot of times you go see your GP and he looks at you and you're very, very thin and says, well, you could lose, gain some weight. And that's, you know, the awareness of the mental illness doesn't exist. Uh, once I saw the psychologist, the road to recovery was steady, but long, about a year, year and a half of seeing him. I was on wow. medication uh, called Remeron, which helped quite a lot for the anxiety issues involved with it. I felt the the key for me in my recovery, which again, it's individualized in every person. I wouldn't be ever so bold as to insist on a a mental health strategy for another individual. But for me, it was goal setting with long-term goals of being coming back to sport, coming back to a normalization relationship with food, which took probably four years, to be honest, that, that goal took a very long time. Um, but the, the, the other element was just mini goals. So with the supervision of a certified dietitian, I was able to say, okay, look, Evan, if you gain five pounds, we'll let you go running. Because, of course, I wasn't allowed to run because I was so thin. It was just dangerous. I, I was at the point of hospitalization. It, it was talked about at the psychologist because of the, how low my weight was but deemed not quite necessary. It was kind of a borderline call. It was deemed not necessary as long as my parents gave me, you know, very solid supervision and the start of the medication. So small goals were in place immediately. Just like, look, if you can gain five pounds, you know, you can go for a walk because at that point I wasn't really allowed to leave the house because I was so weak. And so the small goals helped me because I did genuinely at some level want to get back to those, those uh, activities. Um, I was able to run again about uh, five months after the initial meeting with the psychologist. Uh, I had a great dietitian named Anna Key. I have to you know give her a shout out. She oversaw me 
for three years, slowly helping me do the logistics of just eating more food. She herself had an eating disorder. And so uh, she helped me become more comfortable with certain foods slowly. And the, the key was not to just gain all the weight back over three weeks. It was to acknowledge the mental illness part and then slowly eat more and more food that I was able to do and be comfortable with on a smaller goal setting level. Um, so yeah, there's a very long answer to your question, but for me personally, it was a combination of these short-term goals to get me to become a little bit more comfortable, aware, familiar, so on with food so I can gain a couple pounds and then get X reward, so to speak, like, oh, you can go for a walk. Oh, now you can go for a one mile run. And then the long-term sort of back of my mind goals that I was formulating to, to get back into sport at a certain competitive level. Mm-hmm. And you've taken, I, I know you've written about taking that idea of mini goals. It sounds like that just has kind of permeated your athletic life going forward. Uh, yeah, abs- absolutely. The, the eating disorder changed, not not to get too, you know, Wagnerian drama here, but <laughs> the eating disorder essentially was the turning point of my life uh, for my mental health, my physical health, and just my general life view. Um, I mellowed out quite a lot after it. I was kind of an angry little child <laughs> before it. <laughs> And then I came back with a very, uh, like, yeah, laid back worldview and, and, and with the overall idea, just consistency in all things is, is, is integral to my life on an everyday basis um, because of the way that we were goal setting and, and, and my doctors were just putting these forward. And, and yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more that, that goal setting is everything for me. It's also... Uh, the idea of consistency. I mean, essentially every day during the eating disorder, my goal was to get a little bit better. And yeah, okay, obviously there's going to be small setbacks, but just consistently a little bit of small step up. And and, and that's that's been everything uh, from music to, to racing for me for the last many years, where I, I've never really had a breakout season, quote unquote. I've never really gone that much faster one day and then slowed down the next. I've always gotten a little bit better over over time and 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 yeah absolutely so so the the illness really set my mindset in a different place over the span of a year uh when it was at the worst of it and after that year my entire worldview my entire kind of ethos my entire uh, uh general attitude towards daily life was just entirely different it was much more uh, wholesome. It was much more collected. Not not saying that the eating disorder was a good thing at the end of the day, by any stretch of the imagination, but the sort of uh, stress that I had placed on myself, my parents had kind of made me see a broader picture of, of consistency, a broader picture of goal setting, a broader picture of what I wanted to do with my life. Lessons yeah. learned, I guess. So when right. did you come across triathlon? How did that come into your life? So I broke, essentially, uh, my hip. Once I had returned to running, uh, my my senior year, uh, sorry, my junior year uh, was junior year. I, I can't remember; it's been a while. Uh, after about a year and a half of running, after the eating disorder had started, had abated, and I, and I was able, I was healthy enough, I was a high enough weight to start running uh, competitively again. I threw myself into it wholeheartedly. I started running quite a lot. Uh, two a days. I was running with some of the other fast guys around the area. I was, I was getting speed back. I was working really hard. I had a 
I had won a, a really big cross country race in the, and, uh, immediately like a dull pain in my hip started. Uh, eventually after a couple botched, uh, sports doctor visits, somebody figured out, Hey, this kid's got a giant stress fracture in my hip because essentially I had the bones because I, I, I wouldn't eat milk or cheese cause I knew they were high in calories and I was trying to get better about, you know, being aware and like letting those things into my diet, but it was hard for me because I knew they had a lot of calories. I, I had the bones of, of a 70 year old woman is what my doctor said. So <laughs> I was running. Wow. Yeah, not, not good. Not smart for, you know, an, an, you know an athlete I running 40, 50, 60 miles a week in high school to have that sign of that kind of bone. So it's like, yeah, it was going to break, buddy. Like, what were you thinking? It's like, well, you know. So I had a whole year of no running. And in that year, again, with the goal setting, I like literally two days after I was told, all right, you're going to have to have surgery. You're going to get a titanium rod. I, I still have the pin. Uh, I occasionally will set off one of those darn uh, old school uh, airport. Uh, metal metal detectors. Yeah, I, I flew into a. Uh, uh, Malta, actually, a couple of years ago when I was living in England, I, I got a, like a $30 flight to Malta in the off-season. The little Malti, uh, Maltese airport has just these ancient scanners, and I remember having to go like 10 times like, no, 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 there's a thing in my leg. No, it's not a bomb. It's a, it's a, it's a rod. You know, and the guy's looking at me like, no, 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 go through again and again and again. I'm like, you can pat me down 10 times. It's in my leg. So I have a, I have a six-inch pin in my left leg that's still there uh, from that and because of that, like two days after the surgery, I'm like a friend of mine had been like doing Ironman. And I was like, I'm going to do that. I can't swim, never swim, but I'll do that. So uh, a couple months later, I, I used the money I had uh, earned playing in the opera and some other gigs. And I bought a, a, a very, very basic road bike. I had a, uh, swim lessons at the local university and I was on my way basically. And then I came back and ran a little bit, but at the end of the day, my heart was set towards triathlon. Once I'd done, I survived my first sprint try. I was like, this is amazing. This sport is, is awful. It's so damn hard. Like <laughs> there's three moving parts. This is running so much simpler. You just stand in a line, go run. Okay, done. Great. You go home and, and try it's, it's, It was a nightmare to be honest. So, I, I, and loving nightmarish situations, I, I took to it wholeheartedly and that was kind of it. I was done with running. Wow. Just like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I had entertained <laughs> the idea of running at NCAA level. I had had a couple of folks come up to me and say, oh, I should run at this school and this, this school. And most of them D2. And uh, it seemed like a good idea. But after the, the hip and then just all of, I just is like, look, I have glass legs. I just... I don't know. I, and, and I wasn't enamored with the NCAA. Uh, I, I, and I still am certainly not a big fan of the organization. And at the time, I was really, I looked into doing all the tests and things you have to do. And I was like, yeah, I don't really agree with this, especially because I had friends who were getting sponsorship deals in triathlon. It just didn't make sense. So, yeah, I mean, it was a simple decision for me at the end of the day. Yeah, well, it's worked out really great for you. I mean, I was looking through your race results and you've just progressed like crazy so quickly. You're a five-time All-American, right? Uh, Yeah, I think so. <laughs> he <laughs> thinks so. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Maybe. You know, to be to be honest, um, I, I think going back to the, the 
kind of the goal setting and the eating disorder, I was very fortunate enough to have a coach. Uh, well, I, I briefly was, was an intern. Uh, my father spent 35 years as a civil servant for the army. I interned for uh, many months at working in a division called logistics support activity. And my commanding officer was the West Point triathlon coach. And through a mutual acquaintance, he had got uh, a guy named Tim Crowley, a little gig at West Point and paid him a bunch of money. And so Tim, Tim owed him a favor. Well, in the meantime that Tim had, after Tim had done this for this guy, Tim coached the Olympic team and Tim has got some of the finest athletes in the country. And my commanding officer was like, look, this guy would love you. I think he'd be a good fit. Let me call him up and, and, and remind him that he owes me a favor from his time that he had, I had hooked him up at West Point. And lo and behold, two days later, all of a sudden, Tim emailed me being like, hi, I'd like to be your coach. So I don't know what he did. I don't know what he said. I don't know what he threatened him with, but I had an Olympic coach as my coach and, 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 Everything about the process, Tim has been holistically aware of, aware of the eating disorder, aware of, you know, my mentality. And then we just meshed very well with the idea that like, look, small steps forward, consistency, 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 every single day, go up and show up. And to be honest, through the whole process, the last couple of years, it has always felt like a very gradual curve upwards from the inside, just because, you know, we set the workouts, we do the workouts, uh, and, and the results will happen when they happen, even if there's setbacks, even if it's not a great race, it will slowly get better. So, yeah, again, like it all comes back to sort of the mentality that I had getting through that disease, which was small goal setting, do what you can do today and, and just show up, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it, it's just uh, pretty impressive that you've just kind of chipped away, chipped away and just really set yourself a. Uh, um, I guess, goals that you've been able to achieve steadily along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And I I feel like having raced collegiate, you know, the collegiate scene and and known a lot of the guys who, who, you know, seen their progress and the ones who've dropped out of the sport and the ones who stayed in the sport. Like I raced here in Tempe, Arizona in 2013 uh, for the first edition of the elite collegiate race. And uh, I remember at the uh, athlete meeting the day before we go, you know, the rules briefing, the mandatory meeting, Tim, uh, Tim Yon, who uh, CEO of USAT said, oh, well, well, our goal is to have, you know, hopefully this field become the next crop of our, you know, national level, you know, regional level professional athletes who, you know, stock our races, so to speak. <laughs> and um, yes, like we're a bunch of fish. Yeah, okay, it sounds like a fish farm or something. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, me, or your cattle called into a tent and it's like 90 degrees out in Arizona. You really felt like it. Um, and anybody who swam in Tempe Town Lake will know that fish smell. is. Yeah, really that's pretty warm and sort of murky. Fishy. Very, which was an analogy for my race that day. But um, uh, <laughs> You know, and so that crop of guys, it was funny because a lot of those guys went within a year later. I mean, just, you know, we're flying. And I see a lot of guys come into the sport and over the course of two years, three years, be absolutely smashing it and, and, and at, into the elite level. And then within four or five, they're all burnt out. Even in that race, like a, a couple of three of the guys who were in the top five had like two great years in the sport, trained like lunatics. I mean, 20, 25, 30 hours a week 
essentially, you know, uh, uh, just as much as the, the best Ironman guys and then won some great races and then completely faded out with either injury, mental burnout, or, or, or just not having a good life balance. And, and so I really took that to heart over the last years of just always being a balanced person, balanced athlete, as opposed to just being like, I'm just going to go crazy this year and get great results. And then so be it. And, and again, you still see it, especially if you go look at, you know, go look at the results for collegiate nationals and say, man, I wonder how many of the top 10 are still floating around in the sport. And, you know, the answer becomes quite, quite shocking, frankly. Not many. <laughs> yeah, not many. And, and I, I would like to think that I'm one of the guys who, you know, I floated around that upper mid pack for a long time. And, and now I'm starting to genuinely punch into the, the you know, a, the back marker of the pro field, but it's still there. So I, and I'm very happy with it, but again, it's, it's just more of a slow, steady upwards tick as opposed to a, a flash in the pan, so to speak. So you would say yeah, moderation. So a... No, moderation is key in this sport. Absolutely. Absolutely. Moderation in all things, but it's so hard to see that from the inside right? Like it's so hard to see that for your own training. And even as a coach, like it's hard to see it in your athletes. You think if they can do it today, I'll push a 1% more tomorrow and then 1% more tomorrow and 1% more. And then all of a sudden an athlete hits a mental barrier two years down the road. They're just like, I hate this. I don't want to get up. I don't want to do it. The race results, you know, flaggered, the passion goes yeah, out yeah. and that's all she wrote. Mm. So, that, so you're the, the poster boy for the chip away approach. I, I, yes. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's great. I, I, I really think that, uh, I think we see a lot of that in, I, I mean, I think the takeaway here for a lot of amateur athletes is the same. You see people burn out and get injured within kind of like a two to five year cycle pretty regularly. Absolutely. And the people who stick it out, you know, have kind of learned to chip away and get better incrementally. And they, they also prioritize a certain level of enjoyment with the sport along the way. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you look at uh, folks say they do the sport for a year. They do a couple sprint tries in Olympic and they're like, man, I like this. This is fun. They get all the gear. They get all the magazines and all everybody talks about is Kona, 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 Kona. And, you know, the, the bug is set, the mind is set and, and you see people push and, and yeah, hell maybe in a year year and a half they make kona and they do it and then you hit the massive blues wall the post iron man blues postpartum yeah and they're done and it's interesting because you say well you know you hit the goal and then what happens and and i think people don't want to talk about it because it feels kind of like oh that won't happen to me but if you're aware of it and, and, you know, just, just again, you know, with my background with mental illness, I always try to be aware of the sort of mental pitfalls that I'll probably be stumbling myself into. And I have stayed clear of those sort of big, uh, Ups and downs. yeah, because I've, I've avoided the, the massive emphasis on any single race or any single event. Like, obviously I prioritize a race. I want to do well at a race, um, do Athlon Worlds last year. I was like, this is the race I want to do well at. And it worked out well, but, you know, I, I've never placed my entire existence and being and ethos in one race. And whether people like it or not, I think you see that happening quite often on a daily basis. I mean, I, I at least see it around the Phoenix area. You know, guys are like, I got this Ironman. And like, you know, the profile picture changes to their race number. They're every <laughs> 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 it's true, you know, it's true. And then, you 
know, it's, oh, I can't go out. I can't see my friends. I got to ride the bike at four in the morning. I can't do this. I have to swim at 3.50 a.m. Oh, I can't do it. And, and so it's like, that's not sustainable. Whether you do yeah. or not, your body at a certain point is going to be like, I'm done. I'm done not seeing my friends. My significant other is like, where the hell are you? And it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up eventually. It might not blow up in a year. It might not blow up in two years but it's, it's going to happen sometime. Well, I also think there's just a different expectation now. I'm, I'll, I'll out myself as an old-timer because I started this sport 30 years ago. There was an expectation then that if you did Ironman, it was like going to be like, oh, that would be this big long-term goal, maybe six or seven years out from when you started. Yes. And it's like now it's you do your first sprint race or maybe you just jump right into 70.3. You got your Ironman the next year. And people are getting burned out and injured more, I think, just because there's, in a way, a sort of an unreasonable expectation on people. And if you're not doing it, people are like, well, you haven't done an Ironman yet. You've been in the sport for years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I've Like, what funny, the I, heck? Last time I raced age group nationals, I was I was sitting at a table with my father and I had on a uh, I had it on a University of Oregon triathlon shirt on. And I don't know, some some guy from Portland started talking to me. He's like, well, when the hell are you going to do your Ironman? I'm like. Buddy, I got no interest in Iron Man. Like, you know, it doesn't define my life existence. He's like, well, you know, there's other kids your age doing Iron Man. I'm like, that does that matter? They're not me. It's not my goal. You know, just steer your own ship, man. But I mean, absolutely. Like, look back in the day, had Scott Tinley was was notoriously afraid to not afraid. God, Scott Tinley afraid of anything. He avoided it for a while. He was like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna race out my time on on you know. The, the, the sprint series or the Bud Light series that used to happen back then. And Scott Molina, same case. Scott Molina was a, a very fast runner. And it was kind of like, geez, am I going to be able to run a 250 marathon off the bike? I don't know. I'm, you know, he was very reluctant approach to racing. And that makes it sound bad, but I think it's a, it's a more rounded approach, more awareness. My, my coach, Tim, Tim was the, one of the fastest American in Ironman for a couple of years back in the nineties. And it took him, uh, I believe about nine years to do the full. And even then he realized quickly that he would prefer to stay the short distance, but uh, yeah. The, the, and look, kudos to Ironman. I mean, let's, let's be honest. The, the marketing department at Ironman is making it's their impressive. every day. <laughs> But overall, it's a little, it's, it's a little. Well, it's, it's good to hear, you know, different perspectives from different distances because they each have their challenges. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, a sprint race is just, I think a sprint a little... is just terrifying. I mean, there's no room for error. You can't have a slow transition or it's all over. You, um, you, you but, do and, a lot of extra racing as well, right? So talk to us a little yes! bit about that. How do you mix that in to your other, you know, your own race? Well, I think that's a great, a great segue. Speaking of the Ironman obsession and the sort of uh, fixation that a lot of, <laughs> a lot of athletes have, uh, is a lot of folks don't have an off season. And for me, I need an off season. I need a a, a season where I'm not like just pounding miles out on the road. And and exterior just fits that bill perfectly. I at a certain point come around July, just get tired of riding road miles. And I know some of my colleagues will tell me just to, you know, rule five, harden up buddy. But uh, I, I just can't. And I know my mental state and I don't. Uh, so, so for me, X-Terra is great. Uh, it, it's, it's challenging. It's, it's 
absolutely nightmarishly difficult depending on the course. You know, it, it challenges you to think uh, in a di- besides the normal kind of endurance mindset. I mean, you have to ride a trail. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be rocks and roots. And you might only get to pre-ride it once. And so there's a certain degree of uh, bravery that has to be exhibited to uh, attack lines. Uh, it's also constantly thinking corner to corner, what's next? You know, am I in the right gear to roll up the hill and was my suspension set right and so forth um yeah, and besides that sorts of different dynamics involved absolutely i mean it's 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 a, it's everything that a road try is just times 10 in terms of the mental game frankly and often they always choose like annoying swims like i did laguna beach last year 10 foot waves at the start which i was just like a kid at a candy shop like yes a really hard disgusting swim that's gonna knock us all around like that sounds fun and that's what Xterra is, right? They're like, let's pick something really hard and make everybody do it. And uh, uh, I think, you know, speaking of going back 30 years in the sport, I mean, Xterra is still kind of that ethos that you had uh, out of the original West Coast races in the late 80s, you know, where it was really a, a, a more grassroots campaign. Each race was a little more uh, uh, localized. Xterra still, every race feels like a local race. Um I have a friend of mine uh, named Chris Ganter, who's a really successful Xterra pro. And he, he talks about how even you go to Hawaii and it still feels like a very uh, laid back vibe. So that's the biggest thing. It's just, it's, it's, it's very laid back. I mean, the competitor and the competition's fierce. Everybody's out there, you know, of course, like it is triathlon. Everybody wants to win, but at the end of the day, you know, this, let me put it this way. There's a lot more beer drinking going on in Xterra than there is. There's a there's Isn't a carb car loading or something. Yeah, yeah. There's a few more flasks in transition, and I won't say for sure, but I might have been one of them. But you know, um, <laughs> so the, the atmosphere is different, and the mountain bike, of course, is challenging on a different level. Uh, I think a lot of folks seem to have put it on a like you know a pedestal with like downhill mountain biking, like we're going out there doing massive gravity jumps uh, with like a nine inch suspension, and it's like no, it's it's very accessible i think for the average road athlete you, at the end of the day you just point the wheel where you want to go and pedal i mean it all kind of works out just you're going to have to hit <laughs> some rocks <laughs> i think you're making it sound easier than it actually yeah. is <laughs> i might be biased oh I, I came at it from cyclocross and that was the same thing like in oregon as as you're aware like you know in the pacific northwest also on the east coast of massachusetts uh in that area you know cyclocross come September, October is, is practically a seasonal religion, you know, and if anybody has a local cross race, just go and watch. And, you know, the vibe is just, you know, there's my, my girlfriend, uh, and I who've been together three years now, uh, like our, I don't know, like fifth date, I brought her to one of the cross crusades in Portland. And I was a little like nervous, like, Oh, it's a race. And we show up at the race site and she's, like oh okay this is cool i get the vibe and like i go out to pre-ride for the the a race and she's heckling drinking spiked hot chocolate with a bunch of like giant bearded dudes you know yelling at people down in buddies go faster you know and stuff like that and you know that's the vibe across it's heckling it's it's beer it's it's fun you're doing hot dog hand-ups in the middle of the race 
uh, our local cross Tuesday night race has a mandatory beer hand up or push up hand up if you're not underage uh, on the Tuesday night. So it's very fun, but it's also it's you know, your heart rate sits at 185 beats a minute for an hour. It's not easy. Um, wow. So so getting you know athletes getting the mindset just to to a certain point in the season be done with try and go do something else that's still great for your body is good. It's good. Take a day, be done with it. I get the, you know, the energy going again come December, January to go out and attack the season. How about you talk to us a little bit about your musical um, you know, degree and background and what you're doing there. Uh, that's pretty sure, interesting. Man. Yeah, there's not a lot of uh, professional classical musicians floating around any of the tracks. <laughs> at any level on any given day uh well you know we're lucky to catch a violinist out of a practice room and when they do they're usually pounding a starbucks you know latte that we're probably definitely spiked with something that's stronger than coffee um as they you know wail their way back to tchaikovsky um that being said yeah i i've played double bass uh since fourth grade it was you know something to do and then in high school i was like I, I had a lot of uh, ambition to, to go off and study mathematics, um, but I also love playing bass. And at a certain point, uh, I was like, yeah, I can always go back and open textbooks and read mathematics and get back into that. My, my father has has a billion degrees and many of them in mathematics, quite literally. I think he has nine. Uh, and so <laughs> I was you know, sort of wanting to follow his, his uh, example and follow that field. But I said, no, I'm going to give it a try. I play bass all right. And uh, to be honest, uh, if there's no other instrument I could really do and, and do the amount of training I do. Uh, I practice a lot. I go to many hours of rehearsal a week. Um, but as a bass player, again, we're, we're very laid back instruments. We don't really get these things that people call melodies uh, very often. <laughs> so uh, we, uh, <laughs> we don't, you know, it's a different mindset. Um, but yeah, so I studied uh, classical music performance. At the University of Oregon, under uh, Tyler Abbott, was my bass teacher. I came in not knowing a lot and came out knowing a moderate amount and and play quite quite well. I I uh, started getting gigs at the local orchestras and playing the auditions and I've played with the Eugene Symphony, Corvallis Symphony, and a couple operas. And but frankly, the process is very similar to triathlon. Though I've been doing, I've been playing bass for 16 years, right? Yeah, 16 years almost. 15. I can't remember, but um, yeah, you just, you go, you practice. There's a lot of people who are better than you and you can't look at it. <laughs> you just go up and you do what you're supposed to do that day, play your music, go to rehearsal, do your job. Don't cut, you know, don't rock the boat, follow, you know, follow the conductor, follow whoever's in charge of the instrument section uh, and, and learn your rep and play constantly. So that I, I did four years at the University of Oregon, like I say, I went from never playing a solo in my life because whoever wants to hear a bass solo, you know, please, <laughs> pianos and violins, cellos, those sort of things, not the wailing walrus double bass, but uh, believe it or not, we do have some fun music. Uh, well, most of the time we just steal cello rap. I've, I've, I've stolen uh, two of Bach's cello suites and played them at the same pitch on bass was, was my big achievement at the University of Oregon. But yeah, I, being a musician, I think, uh, despite what a lot of folks may think, especially classical, is it's really like going to trade school. We're, I know this is a contentious statement amongst my music friends, but they probably won't hear this. So uh, I'm safe for the moment from being hit with bows and tubas and things. But uh, 
I don't think we're really artists as performers. We're really interpreters of artists who are composers. And uh, at the end of the day, we are kind of like expressively uh, oiled machines of music. We, we interpret music and, and, and the variation of interpretation is, of course, something uh, that makes us unique from machines. But uh, at the end of the day, your orchestral musicians are 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 essentially people who've gone and learned a very very uh, technical skill very very well and are quite good at it and 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 to make the performance engaging for the audience, uh, uh, not only uh, uh, emotionally but but orally as well and give them a good uh, show in terms of the sound that the instruments are making. I came to Arizona State and moved away from from beautiful beautiful Oregon to study uh, with. Arguably, Green, cool, Oregon. Yes. <laughs> All of this wonderful craft beer, nice people, and trees of the ocean. Um, <laughs> all of those things I left for Phoenix, which has cactuses. Stuff. Yes, we have cactuses. <laughs> yes, we do. And that's about it. You know, water. What's sunshine. Water? Yes, we have sunshine. Well, trust me, I love it in January. I don't love it about now, but. Um, I came to Arizona State to study with basically the best bass player in the world, a guy named Catalin Rutaro, and who plays violin music on double bass as if it were a violin. And uh, wow. have continued my studies here, and I'm I am now a doctoral student. So I do do some academic work. I'm writing uh, about halfway through a uh, dissertation on uh, a very famous compo- European composer named Ernest Bloch, who actually lived and died in Newport, Oregon. So uh, that was you know continuing my Oregon ties. Uh, so yeah, so so to get back to it, it, that's one of the reasons why I have a unique schedule, and I think I think at the end of the day, if more triathletes should kind of own their unique schedules and sort of issues that are around that, uh, as a you know, and and go off on their own and be brave and do workouts on your own. Like I rarely do a group ride because, frankly, uh, you know, a lot of Friday and Saturday nights, I'm at I'm down at the hall. I even have rehearsal, or we have a show, or I have two shows, or even three. I mean, I if I play at the Broadway musical. Uh, it could be, you know, I'm going to have a show every single night for a month and then some days with two. And so it's like, you know, realistically that, that lifestyle is just not going to you know line up with the group ride and kind of owning the individual element of training and the sport has been integral uh, to, to being able to play and, and work as a musician uh, and also try to, you know, push the, the boundaries of what I can do in, in triathlon. It's, 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 it's annoyingly hard sometimes when the maestro is, you know, particularly demanding, especially at school. And, you know, we end up doing 10 hours of rehearsal a week, uh, especially as a bass player, because half the time you're just back bored to tears. Um, you know, often composers forget to write nice, interesting bass lines. But, you know, that's, that's, that's a complaint for another podcast, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think like it it's a good balance for you to be in this i mean an orchestra is a very much a group effort triathlon yes. is very much an individual effort oh i need it yeah i, I i've often I, I i've been you know speaking of you know kind of the vein of mental uh illness and the mental frankness here uh it's it's hard because a lot of times in the music world it's so cutthroat too even though it of course we are all in the orchestra, it, it, it's, I, I suffer from these panic attacks, essentially, of like, oh, my God, I should just give up, try and play music. And then sometimes I, you know, I get out training, have a couple of good races. I'm like, I should just give up on music. And at the end of the day, I've realized for myself, the pursuit of both 
as well as I can do them is key. I mean, I, I, I love both and just kind of own the fact that I'm, you know, maybe I'm not going to be world-class in both, but, uh, you know, to be content with what I can be in, in, in both of those pa- passions is, is meaningful to me at some level. Uh, but yeah, orchestra, I adore, I adore the, uh, you know, group effort of an orchestra, uh, even and, and more so, frankly, uh, opera. I would encourage everybody to go 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 to opera. I mean, there, it's it's extraordinarily engaging, um, especially the way the modern world uh, works. I think opera companies are ahead of their time and in, in, in kind of uh, making it accessible to the new you know millennial audience. And uh, the element of teamwork involved in those productions is amazing and 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 to be a a mere bass player in the back of the orchestra for those uh mammoth undertakings of of coordination is some of the funnest times i've ever had in my life to a lesser extent musicals as well i mean my my time at the arizona broadway theater has been has been fun the amount of bonding you get over you know slogging through your 35th showing of whatever you know Musical it is, and 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 being able to mimic the actors on stage, lines of the pit, you know, blissfully out of sight of the audience is always entertaining. But uh, yeah, I mean, orchestra is a giant, uh, uh, cohesive group effort where we're all, you know, blissfully most of the time working together. Not that there aren't artistic differences that crop up very often, but um, yeah, and so I kind of need that, and then to not have that be my like, Oh my gosh, you know, stab the guy in the face next to me with my bow or choke somebody out with a string uh, element of competitiveness that you have in triathlon. <laughs> um, there's a sort of, especially amongst us bass players, right? I mean, you know, violinists. Yes. Solidarity. Yes, Solidarity absolutely. and bass players. Oh, the, the singers, my God. I mean, you know, if there's, if there's, if we do a Verity opera, you can bet your bootstraps, every soprano in that music department, is ready to go to fisticuffs with each other to get those leading roles. To get the lead, yeah. Yeah, for bass players, if there's a solo, everybody's like, oh, I want it. Hey, you want to take it? Yeah. No, no. I messed that one on down the section. Uh, we always say <laughs> last chair, best chair. So if you sit in the far back, you know, nobody has to see you. So, and hey, the paycheck's the same for the whole section, um, besides the leader of the section. So uh, there you go. There's some uh, <laughs> some musical pay scales your listeners probably. Yeah, yeah it is. It's very different than try. It's good. All right. Well, I, I got to ask this question before the podcast ends because I work in IT. I'm a nerd. I'm from Eugene, Oregon. Uh-huh. So it's just very shocking to see somebody sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Which for non-IT nerds is an IT nerd training online, uh, you know, powerhouse. H- how did that happen? Yeah, um, I'm. I first off, very fortunate to be sponsored by CBT Nuggets. I've had a great relation with them for the last two and a half, three years. Uh, great, great company. Super nice folks out of Eugene. Uh, yes, very, very uh, much a household name amongst those in the IT profession. I. It is a long story. I, I got an uh, introduction to somebody at the company. We talked and I, you know, kind of gave him my story and kind of what I've been through and what I, what I was about, my kind of general, you know, essentially what I've told you guys, my general mindset, my general uh, outlook on the world. And I said, look, I'm a local guy. I'm nothing crazy. I'm just, you know, here to do what I do. And and I said, look, I'm, I don't have the financial resources to go race uh, at the world championships for age group. Asia World Championships, and but I think I can do damn well. 
I, I, you know, I said, look, I finished 11th the year before. I think I could, you know, realistically maybe push to a podium. And uh, they said, yeah, you know, that, that'd be awesome. Um, why don't, you know, well, let us help you with that. And they helped me with that. And then from there on, we, we had uh, two years of, uh, you know, a relationship and I uh, help out uh, coaching their athletes, uh, their, their, their employees in uh, everything from running, cycling, weightlifting, nutrition stuff. And uh, they helped me race. It's awesome. I'm, I'm really fortunate to have their support. And like I said, I would encourage all athletes at all levels uh, to, to, you know, as opposed to rushing to the large, you know, sort of uh, factory teams for the sport, you know, that exists just, you know, bikes, watches, nutrition to, to look out for more unique ways of partnering with local business. And it's a very beneficial symbiotic relationship. I mean, CBT uh, is, is super kind in supporting me, but I also feel like I've repped them on a different level and brought some attention to their company amongst folks who are aware of that, you know, in that in their profession, but weren't fully aware of their involvement. And so, yeah, unique opportunities, unique relationships, uh, pairing triathlon into new venues has always been something very important to me. Uh, so, so again, just not sticking to the singular mold of try being a certain sport for a certain person, a certain lifestyle, yada, yada, but branching out to that. And that resonated well with them. They're, uh, you know, a very ambitious company, a very, uh, innovative company, and one that also s- seems to, uh, want to give their employees a different experience. And so, you know, having me as a resource and, and, and being able to serve them in a, in a capacity that, that helps them on a daily basis with our holistic like health approach and keeping them healthy, makes them better employees uh, and, 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 and makes their work better. So it was a very good relationship in that sense. So uh, yeah. And, and like, I just frankly got lucky in, in having acquaintance introduce me to somebody at the company and we went from, from there. And, and as you know, Eugene is a is a growing town, but it's always a small it's a small community, and uh, the community <laughs> makes itself known. I, I currently have a, a distillery here in Arizona uh, named Adventurous Stills that sponsors me, and I, that gets me a lot of interesting looks in the triathlon field. But it also gets me a lot of people <laughs> who are very excited at the local triathlon scene to see uh, that you know sponsorship opportunities as well as uh, exposure. Because frankly, it's like look. A lot of us like to have a drink at the end of the day because if you do three hours of training, I think you've earned it. So the, the mindset goes along uh, well with that uh, area as well. So, so yeah, like I say, unique opportunities, bringing more companies into the sport, bringing the sport out to different people, uh, different areas of the triathlon audience, kind of aware of the different venues that people are interested in. Makes for a greater relationship overall, as opposed to just having the same old tried and true methods of of uh, company involvement, so to speak. Awesome. Well, this nerd appreciates oh. your your cool uh, cool kit. <laughs> oh, thank you. My my <laughs> wonderful uh, partner Sarah designed that. She's uh, she got a degree in, in fine art from the University of Oregon. So uh, having her involved in some of the design process has uh, been fun. She also painted my mountain bike too. Painting my road bike too this summer. So. Yeah, might as well, right? If you're gonna race, might as well go go flashy for it. Yeah. Okay, so as we wrap this up, are there any people you'd like to give a shout out to? Oh, I think I mean mostly I couldn't be more you know grateful for for Sarah Richards for uh, putting up with uh, God knows how many bikes in this 400 square foot apartment. So <laughs> that um, <laughs> you know, 
parents and so forth for helping me through all of the terrible uh, eating disorder stuff. My brother, uh, who's a uh, finishing up the University of Oregon and going to go to med school, uh, for uh, keeping me grounded about what supplements, which is most of them, that don't make sense. So <laughs> uh, I call him my uh, my uh, phone doctor. But uh, and of course, my my coach Tim Crowley. I, I mean, really, at the end of the day, uh, in terms of performance, I couldn't recommend getting a certified coach more. I mean, the guy is uh, awesome and has been able to steer me through uh, almost yeah uh, six years of uh, knowing him as my coach. I mean, that's a long time to spend with a coach, especially in this sport. I would, I you know, at this point, I would call him a good friend. So. Uh, without him, I wouldn't be able to race at the level that I'm I'm racing at. So, yeah. and 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 of course, uh, the local guys at CBT Nuggets and the adventurers uh, for helping me get out there. Especially because, as we all know, this sport is is not financially easy uh, for the uh, the grad student budget, shall we say? <laughs> well, yeah. thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. I like what you guys are doing with the with the page. You know, bringing a different element to the sport on a more level like i said it's it, it again it feels it feels like we're really trying to to pull the ethos back to the grassroots kind of um setup that it was it's really good i'm glad to see this sort of uh storytelling of, of folks uh, you know in their communities being able to be shared at a broader audience and folks realize hey that guy's just like me or that gal's just like me so very good for you guys I'm, I'm i'm stoked to see where it'll go and uh couldn't be happier. Yeah, no, thank you for taking the time to be on here. Um, where can everyone find you online? So uh, you can follow my uh, triathlon page, Evan Party Triathlon, on Facebook. Um, I'm also just Evan Party on Instagram. And uh, if any other want to get in contact with me, uh, my website is evanpartytriathlon.com. And I have some, uh, still in progress, but I have a lot of. Uh, race reports that are certainly don't take themselves seriously posted on there with plenty of uh, references so uh give those a read sometime perfect okay so our last question why do you try why do i try um for the feeling of uh, satisfaction at the end of the day to be honest yep yeah that's awesome awesome that one's relatable to a lot of folks well, you've been you've been great to have on. I, I've just your story is is I I just I already took away so many things to just I file know. away mentally. So thank you for sharing. <laughs> oh, no I problem. I have tons of insights from this one. All right, Evan. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Thank you, Evan. Adios. Adios. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show and love the hot podcast, we'd love for you to head on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Your review helps us out a lot and would be very much appreciated. Thank you all again for being a part of this community and be sure to join us again next week for another episode where we will bring you another amazing guest and story. Until then, my friends, keep trying.